I'll be reading Mark 12, 28 to 34. Then when one of the scribes came, having heard of them reasoning to get together, perceiving that he hadn't answered them well, and asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it is, this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, so the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the, the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one, one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt, more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifice, sacrifices. Now, when Jesus saw that he and answered wisely, he said to him, "You are not far from the kingdom of God." But after that, no one dared to question him. We will be discussing, appreciate that, Zach, very much. Appreciate good songs and good prayer we've been let in. We'll be discussing this incident here in the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 12, 28 through 34, Zach just read for us. And it's good reading. This is Tuesday before the crucifixion. This is one of the most stormy days in Jesus' life on earth. And yet a certain scribe comes to him and has this question about which is the great of the commandments, which are the greatest of the commandments. And so we'll focus on the Savior and the scribe, the Savior and the scribe this morning. We are seeking to know more and more about the Savior. I love this statement over in John 4, 42 where these men from the Samaritan village had come to see Jesus and they said, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And I hope that we can all say that as well. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We're, we're dealing with the Savior here in Mark 12, but also a certain scribe. Certain scribe. There were a lot of scribes in Jesus' days. As you can kind of hear in this, in this word scribe, these were, these were guys who copied the law. They copied the old law. There were scribes for the Pharisees and scribes for the Sadducees. There were scribes everywhere because they didn't have copying machines in those days. They had men. And these men were very diligent. And they were very hardworking. They would copy... The scriptures from early to late in the day. And they were very diligent in this. They were very conscientious about this. If they felt like they had left out a word when they got through with the page. Oftentimes they would count the words as they would progress in their writing. And then they would turn around and count them backwards. And if the two counts did not match, they would tear that page up and start all over. They were very meticulous. One of the reasons we are able to have the scriptures today is because of the work of the scribes 
in those early days. And so here is a scribe who comes to Jesus, the Savior and the scribe. And I want to just make three statements about him this morning. Just three statements that hopefully will help us as we seek to serve and worship our God. Just three statements. The first statement is this. There is something different about this man, about this scribe. There is something different about this man. I think you'll understand why I'm saying this. Okay. He had associates who were not so kind to Jesus. Okay. This is Tuesday of the crucifixion week. The, the attacks upon Jesus from these different religious leaders, they were all ramping up. They were, they were, very, they were becoming very uh, severe. Okay. And they especially tried to trap Jesus in what he was saying. They're trying to get a sound bite from him so that maybe they can go use that against him. If you go back with your eyes to Mark 11 and 27, I believe it is. Mark 11 and verse 20, 27, you'll see that one group comes to him, the chief priests and some other scribes and some elders. They come to him and they want to know, by what authority do you do these things? And then Jesus had a question for them. He said, the baptism of John, is it from heaven or from men? And so they had to ponder that a minute, the chief priest did. They said, now, if we say that John's baptism was from heaven, then people are going to wonder why we haven't been following John. If we say that John's baptism was from, from men, then uh, that's going to bring us in disfavor with the people because a lot of people are following John. So they looked to Jesus and they said, you know, we just cannot answer your question. And then as you get into chapter 12 here, Jesus gives a parable about a man who let out his, uh, he rented out his vineyard uh, to some certain tenants and he went away uh, to another place. And then later, as the vineyard uh, grew, uh, the man sent servants back to get his fruit, to get his production from the vineyard. And as his servants came back to that vineyard, then the tenants began to persecute them and beat them and kill them. And to finally, after he sent several servants back toward his vineyard area, finally he said, I'm going to send my son. They'll surely reverence my son. So he sent his son and they said, oh, here comes the the heir. Here comes the son. Let's kill him and take over uh, this vineyard. And so they killed him. And Jesus gave that parable in order for the Jews to understand what they were doing. They were about to reject the very son of God, the very son of God. And so that goes down through about verse 12. So just see here that Jesus is being attacked from every situation, from every, uh, every point of the religious scene in that day. So you see these guys coming, the chief priests and the elders. But then if you look in, in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, there's another group that comes. These are called the Herodians and Pharisees. The Herodians and Pharisees. And their intent is to try to, try to embarrass Jesus, try to catch him in his words, and so who were the Herodians? They were, these were guys who were, who were religious, in a sense, but they reported back to Herod. Okay. So they kept, they kept their eye on the religious scene for Herod, and so they worked together with the Pharisees. Now here's the question they had for Jesus. They said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay. Now how Jesus answers this is, is interesting, because... If he doesn't answer it in one way, then the, then the Herodians are ready to go report to Herod and say, hey, uh, Jesus is saying tax shouldn't be paid to you. But if he answers it in another way, then the Jews are going to be ready to pounce on him because many of the Jews believe they shouldn't have to be paying tax 
uh, to the Roman government whatsoever. So what's Jesus going to do with this question? He says, Jesus does, Jesus says, give me a, give me a coin. So they bring him a coin and he asks this question, uh, whose inscription is on this coin? And they said, well, Caesar's. And then Jesus gave an answer. He said, render to Caesar's the things which are Caesar's and render to God the things which are God." And they all marveled at, at, the, at the precision, precision and, the, and the exactness of his answer. So, but here's another group that came trying to trap him in his words. And then finally, notice here Mark 12, beginning in verse 18 through 27. Here comes the Sadducees. So you see, first, Mark 11, here comes the chief priest. And then after that didn't work, here comes the Herodians. And now that didn't work, so here comes the Sadducees, and they have a question. Now the Sadducees didn't believe in the soul. They didn't believe in afterlife. They didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. So they got this question for Jesus. They said, now the old law says that if a man and his wife are together and the man dies and he leaves no children uh, for his wife, then his brothers to come and, and marry uh, the woman and raise up seed and and so, yes, that's right, according to the law. And so they pose this, this idea, well, this man died and left no children, and so his brother took over, and then he died, and his next brother, and their seven brothers had her. They all had her. Now, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, he said to these men, these Sadducees, now these Sadducees had known the Scriptures. They, they spent their life knowing the scriptures they should have known the scriptures but he tells them you don't know the scriptures nor the power of god for in the resurrection they'll be neither married nor given in marriage but be as they'll be as the angels of god in heaven but jesus said since you uh, brought up the resurrection do you remember what moses uh encountered do you remember what god said to moses when moses uh, was at the burning bush remember what god said to him he said, I, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by the time God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead about 500 years. Okay. But God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That implies, of course, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. There is an afterlife. There is going to be a, a resurrection. God is a present tense uh, God. So Jesus deals with the the Sadducees, and that brings us now to this scribe. You see, there's something different about this scribe. Something, he's, he's not running along with the crowd. Right? Like so many of these, these adult religious men were doing, they were just following the crowd. But not this scribe. Not this scribe. Let me encourage us to be like this scribe in this sense. Let's not just follow what everybody else is doing. Let's not be that way. Back in Exodus 23 and verse 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. It's a command from God through Moses in those days. Don't, don't follow a multitude uh, to do evil. Romans 12, 2 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Matthew uh, 15, 14, Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, what happens? Now, they both fall into the ditch. Don't, and that's what was happening here with so many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were just blindly and without very much thought at all. They were just following the, the crowd. Okay. That's what they were doing. In 1 Samuel 8, you might remember verses 19 and 20 that 
when God's people asked for a king, the reason they were asking for a king is so they could be like other nations. Okay? And there is a tendency within human beings to want to be like everybody else. It, it drives the religious world. It, it drives a lot of churches. It drives a lot of Christians. It drives a lot of followers of Christ to want to be like other people. And what we're trying to say with the example of this man is, let's not be like that. Let's be more like this scribe. He was not going along with everybody else. In John chapter 7, you might remember that some men had come back. They were supposed to arrest Jesus, at least detain him, bring him back to these religious Pharisees. And they didn't because they said, John seven forty five. They said, uh, no man's ever spoke like this man. We've never heard anything like this in our life. Okay. And then the Pharisees said this to, the, to these men who came back without Jesus. They said, have any of the authorities or have any of the Pharisees believed in him? As if that was supposed to just completely rule their life. They were, it, none of the other Pharisees are believing on Jesus. None of the other religious authorities are believing on Jesus. Why are you men believing in in him, why are you giving him favor? Why are you why are you giving him the benefit of the doubt? But see, they thought that the rule of the majority is supposed to, to rule everybody, and they they soon learn better than that. I heard this phrase all my life: jumping on the bandwagon. You ever heard that? Don't just jump on the bandwagon and follow, uh, follow everybody. I, ever since I heard that phrase first time when I was small. I knew what it meant just because of the way it was used in a sentence, but I've never really thought about where did it come from, so I thought I'd just look that up. It comes from the 18th and 19th century here in our country when small towns would have parades or political rallies, and people wanted to make their way in from the countryside to the, to the small town. But they would have a wagon for the musicians, those who were going to do the music for the parade or the music for the political rally, they would put them all in one wagon. They put the musicians in one wagon, and they would get to go ahead of everybody else, okay? Because they needed to be there when everything got started. And so, people began to say, well, "Let's just jump on that, but jump on that bandwagon, you know? Let's jump on the bandwagon. We can get there ahead of everybody else." And so, that particular incident became sort of, of a saying. That when you say, let's jump on the bandwagon, that, that, that represents someone who is going to go to something or be part of something for the excitement of the crowd and not particularly because of something that is meaningful. Okay. They would just jump on the bandwagon for the excitement of just going to an event instead of really thinking about whether something being said is going to be true or not. Okay. The Lord doesn't want us just to jump on the bandwagon because of the excitement of some event or the excitement of a crowd, but rather whether something is being presented that is true according to Scripture or something being done in accordance with Scripture, that's when we get excited and, and join in something like that. Years ago, uh, there was a gospel preacher that did a lot of work in our, in our part of the world named Marshall Keeble. And he once made a trip to an African village and there was, a, there was a young man there in his 20s who wanted to be baptized. He'd heard Brother Keeble preach and, and he wanted to be baptized, but he was really receiving a lot of threats from his friends and some of the village leaders. And 
he just wasn't sure what he should do. Brother Keeble came back home saying he was baptized. But he, he said the key was what the boy's mother said to him. And here's what the boy said, what boy's mother said to the boy to encourage him to be baptized. She said, son, your friends can lead you into hell, but they can't lead you out of hell. Your friends can lead you into hell, but they can't get you out of hell. And once the boy heard that, then his mind was made up. He was focused and he went and did what he ought to do. Let's not just jump on the bandwagon. And so, the first thing I want to say about this man is, this, this, is uh, this, this man is different. There's something different about this man. In a similar way, and in the second place, here's the second statement I want to make about this man here in, Luke, in um, Mark 12. There's something distinct about him. In other words, there are some things specifically about him that we need to notice. We need to notice something distinct. For one thing, Jesus, as you notice here, as they have their conversation, Jesus noticed this man, he answered discreetly. He he answered wisely. He's not like the others in his answers. But also Jesus pays him a compliment compliment here. If you notice here in Mark 12 and 34, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's a compliment. In other words, the man is doing right. The man is thinking right. Okay. And if he keeps on thinking and doing in, in these ways, then he's going to end up in the kingdom of God. Jesus pays him a compliment. Jesus didn't pay a lot of compliments. He did. I remember over in um, Matthew 8 and verse 10, Jesus complimented the centurion's faith. He says, I've not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. In Matthew 15, 28, the woman come to Jesus begging for her daughter to be released from a, a demon uh, had such great faith. Jesus said to her, he said, oh woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. You remember in Matthew 26 when Mary came and anointed Jesus' feet and gave him honor. He said, leave her alone. She is doing something that will be a memorial to me. She's doing this in, in, um, in anticipation of my burial. He complimented her. In John 1, Jesus saw Nathaniel and he said, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no, in whom is no guile. Okay. Jesus would compliment people. The, Luke uh, 21, you remember the first few verses there that a, a widow gave all that she had. She gave those two mites and that was all of her living and, and Jesus complimented her. Here Jesus is complimenting this man. He's saying, You're not far from the kingdom of God. There is something that this man gets that the others are not getting. I want, I want us to notice four things. Notice four things as we think about there's something distinct about this man. Notice four things about him. One, he, he gets it in regard to honesty. He gets it in regard to honesty. These men, these men, and it is specifically said here in Mark 12 in regard to Uh, verses 13 to 14 in regard to the Herodians, but it's true of all these other religious men. They were trying to to catch Jesus in some sort of dilemma, religious or or doctrinal dilemma, to where they can go report that and have a a reason to try to get rid of him. Very, very dishonest. Very dishonest. But this man understands this is not how you treat another Individual. Let us make sure we never get caught up in such 
in, in such dishonesty. Let us make sure we never get carried away. Uh, when we are uh, making judgments, we need to hear what is being said. If you're going to make a judgment, you need to know the whole truth, whether it be about somebody or whether it be about God and, and His truth. Okay. This man gets it in regard uh, to honesty. Honesty. Just, just basic honesty. One time Jesus said as He gave the parable of the sower, He said, The seed will find good ground in a good and honest heart. Luke 8.15 It's the good and honest heart that will receive the seed, the gospel, the word of God. And there, there's the person he will, who will grow for Christ. So he gets it in regard to honesty. He also, he gets it in regard to Jesus. He tells Jesus, as Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, teacher, you have answered correctly here in verse um, Mark 12, is about verse 32 and 33. You've answered correctly. You are right. Uh, teacher, and then as as the scribe approaches Jesus here in Mark twelve twenty eight and twenty nine, it says that he understood Jesus had had correctly answered and correctly dealt with his religious friends. So he gets it in regard to Jesus. He heard Jesus speak. He could see that Jesus was making sense in regard to what the Old Testament actually said. He could know and hear about the miracles Jesus was doing. In every way, Jesus was presenting himself as the Son of God, and so he gets it in regard to Jesus. Also, number three, this scribe, he gets it in regard to love. He, he gets it in regard to love. Jesus says, and then the scribe repeats it back to him, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You know, Jesus was basically saying that you can divide all the commands of God and put them in two columns. You label the two columns, love God on the one side, love everybody else, love your neighbor on the other side, and all the commands of God, and it's still true today even under the new covenant, it's still true. You can line up all the commands of God either under love God or under love others, but they're all there. Okay. Under the law of Jesus, we still have a religious responsibility and we still have a moral responsibility uh, toward other people. Jesus breaks it down for him. You shall love the, God, lo the Lord your God with all your heart. That is... We are to love the Lord and give Him all of our emotions. All our emotions. Anytime that we have an emotional doubt about God, then we are to go to God and say, Lord, I know that as I understand more about You, then You will help me understand and feel in a better way towards You and toward others. We are to give the Lord uh, our heart emotionally. Okay. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and then all your soul. All your soul. That means as you come to the Lord, you give Him your life. You love Him with your entire life. Not just on Sunday, not just on certain events, not just on certain occasions, but we give Him our life. As Revelation 2.10 says, we are faithful unto death. Be thou faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. So we love Him with our life. We love Him with our heart, soul, mind. We, we love the Lord and we give Him our time in study. We give Him our time 
in thinking and in meditation and reflecting upon His Word and, and applying that to our lives. We love Him with all our minds. And then we love Him with all our strength as well. That is, when we do things for the Lord and we give Him our efforts and our energy, we give Him all of what we got. So we love the Lord with all of our efforts, with all of our mind, with all of our emotions, okay? and then also with, the, with our entire lives. The, the scribe here, he gets this. He understands that loving God is a deep down consideration. It, it's, a, it's an all-embracing uh, consideration. We were looking at some of the statements uh, from the birth of Jesus this morning in class, and it's wonderful to notice how that the wise men who came to worship Jesus, when they saw that star over the house, they rejoiced with great exceeding joy. They rejoiced greatly with exceeding joy. Okay. You see, they had listened to God and they had done what God said. They had given all their efforts. But when they got there, then their, all their emotions was filled and, and he, they took them and laid them at uh, the feet of the Lord. So he gets it in regard to love. To love. And then a fourth thing about how distinct this scribe is. A fourth thing is he gets it in regard to the heart. That is, he understands there's more to religion than, than the outward forms. I, I believe this is one thing that really distinguishes this scribe from the other scribes and from the other religious people of his day. Notice here in Mark 12 and 33... When he says back to Jesus, yes, we shall love the Lord with all our heart and understanding and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds this. He says, he says, all of this love is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe understands something. Okay? He understands that religion to God and to the Lord Jesus is more than simply putting on a good appearance. It must come from the heart. He understands this. I believe this scribe has remembered what he's been writing down from Old Testament scriptures. And I wish we just had all kinds of time here. I'm going to ask you to go to Psalm 51 with me. We'll just go to one together in the Old Testament. Let me just refer to some others. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 18... God said through that prophet that he was weary of all the, the blood sacrifices. He was tired of all, the, of all the burnt offerings because the people's heart was not in it. Okay. The same thing in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. He said, you can bring me rivers of oil, thousands of rivers of oil. Okay. You can even give your own first son, firstborn son uh, to be burned at the altar. But unless you learn... To love the Lord and to do justice and do kindly and to be humble before Him, it's, it's all for nothing. Now, there are several passages like that uh, in the Old Testament, and this scribe understood them. But let's read from Psalm 51 what David says, verses 16 and 17, as he confesses his sin before God. He says to the Lord, Lord, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering or I would give that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. That's, that's the one thing in a major way that this scribe gets that the others don't get. Okay. The Pharisees and Sadducees were so, so sold on presenting yourselves as religious to look the part but they had forgotten about how important the heart is. Now Jesus is going to take this very thing, and this is what we've got to listen to. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, Jesus takes this very ideal and he comes down hard on us. And so we, but we've got to let him talk to us, all right? This is the occasion when... Matthew, Levi, had invited all his friends, the tax collectors, to the house to be able to meet Jesus and listen to him. What a great thing to do. The Jews began to murmur against Jesus because he's associating with these sinners. And Jesus said a couple things. He said, first, those that are whole do not need a physician, but those who are sick, that's why I'm here. These folks are spiritually sick. This is why I'm here. And then Jesus makes a statement from Hosea 6 verse 6 where the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go, and then Jesus said, go and learn what this means. Jesus is referring to the very same idea that the Old Testament brings out again and again. The importance of the heart and soul Which then brings out the right and proper worship and service to the Lord. But it starts in the heart. And Jesus is saying to them of his day and to us today. That if we are not among sinners. If we're not spending some time among sinners. And trying to lead them home to the Lord. Then we also are getting involved in just mere forms and outward displays rather than the true religion of God. And the scribes say, this is what Jesus really loves about this scribe. He, he understands this very heart of his religion. And so there's something different about this scribe, yes. And there's something distinct about him, absolutely. Our final statement this morning is there's something dangerous, dangerous about him. Jesus tells him, you're not far from the kingdom. I, I truly believe, and there's no use, no reason not to believe, that this scribe continues in his good thoughts and his study and in his practices and eventually becomes a member of the kingdom, the church of our Lord, and serves the Lord until he dies and he's, he's, we're going to see him in heaven. That's what I believe. We don't know what happens after this. It's not written down, but there's no reason not to believe that. Okay, But also... The scribe is in a dangerous place because he is a human being. Now we have an assembly here. We're human beings. We all have these tendencies. I'm going to, me I'm going to mention some tendencies that this scribe would have. We also have them. And it might be that we also are, are close to being what God would have us to be. We also may be close to being where God would have us to be, but we haven't gotten there yet. 
And it may be because of these tendencies, these habits that human beings get into. That may be the reason why we're not there yet. But let me mention a few of these. There is the danger of disinterest. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1. Ecclesiastes 12 1 says, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, before the evil days come, before you say about them, I have, I have no pleasure in them. What he's picturing there is a, a young man perhaps who has grown up religious and he's serving God, but then as the days go by, if he is not diligent in his service and in his study, then he's going to say, I no longer have pleasure in that. When I was little, I enjoyed Bible school. When I was smaller, I enjoyed church. But now I'm big and I'm doing bigger things and, and I have no pleasure in them. You see, there's a danger of just growing in a, away from God, just having disinterest in Him. Also, there is the danger of pride because as life goes along, sometimes wealth comes our way, success comes our way, and we don't see our need for Jesus anymore. You see, we are hoping that this this scribe continues in his path and doesn't become disinterested and doesn't become full of pride. But sometimes success and wealth come around and we don't really see our need for Jesus and we don't ever really start serving him in a wholehearted way. Also, uh, there's a danger of comfort. Many people will listen to the gospel and they say, well, I like my life the way it is right now. I like the way. Later, on, later I, may, I may entertain the idea of a really humbly and wholeheartedly serving and submitting to the Lord. But I kind of like my life the way it is right now. So don't bother me right now. That's the danger of comfort. Danger of comfort. There's the danger of, of not taking sin seriously. There's the danger of not taking sin seriously. The way it ought to be taken. Sin is the worst problem on earth. I hope we've been able to bring that out on our Sunday night back to the Bible uh, lessons. But it's intended for us to to notice our position, our spiritual condition before God. We must take sin in a serious way. But some people will, will just rationalize and they'll say, well, I'm not as bad as other people. Or... They might say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than some. I can tell you that. Well, see, that's, that's not taking sin seriously. Just one sin, one weakness separates us uh, from God. But what if we had leprosy? What if we were diagnosed with leprosy? Would we, not, would we not search the ends of the earth to see if there might be something that can help us? Would, wouldn't we go to the ends of the earth to try to find that cure to get with somebody and yet sin is worse than any leprosy. It's worse than any cancer. We must take sin seriously. And that, there's a danger of, of letting up on that. And then there's also the danger of not finishing what you start. Human beings are terrible about this. They're terrible about this. People will admit, I'm good at starting something, but I, I don't ever finish it. I'll have to have somebody else finish it for me. I'll, sit, I'll shoot the idea to you, but somebody else has got to carry out the idea. You know, we're terrible about that. Revelation 3, 1 and 2, Jesus was complaining against the church of Sardis because of all the works they had started. But in the sight of God, he says, you haven't finished any of these. And a lot of times we start toward the kingdom of God. We start toward a relationship with the Lord, but we, we, we end up short. And we're terrible about this. These are human tendencies that all of us have. 
And then there's the danger of, of religious activities. There is a danger in religious activities. It kind of deceives us, you know. Well, we're doing a few religious things. Isn't that what Jesus was warning about in, in Matthew 7 when he talked about these guys that would meet him on the judgment day and say, Lord, uh, didn't did we do many mighty works? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't, didn't, we, uh, didn't we do all these great things in your name? And Jesus will profess to them and say, I never knew you. Because back up Matthew seven twenty one, they said to him, Lord, Lord, but they didn't ever do his will. They never did obey him. See, obedience is tied to the kingdom of God. Unless we do the will of our Father, we won't be added uh, to the kingdom. So there's a danger of just religious things. Religious things. A lot of people will equate things going on with being in the kingdom. Okay. We're thinking about the danger here. You've got this Equate brand that you see at Walmart, you know, takes the place of regular brands and, and medicines and vitamins and so forth. Well, a lot of people equate what they're experiencing with being in the kingdom of God. Okay? It's the devil's deceit. A lot of people think, well, my parents are in the kingdom, so that maybe that makes me, my parents are faithful, so maybe that makes me faithful. Or they'll say, well, my wife is very religious. My wife is in contact with a lot of people. My wife does a lot of service, as if uh, we, can just, um, we can just substitute that for our own uh, obedience and service ourselves. Some will say, well, I have a lot of friends that are very religious and we have a lot of conversations and that, that, might, that might make somebody feel like they're in the kingdom. Some people have a lot of Bible knowledge. I've met a lot of folks with a lot of Bible knowledge. I had a walk one time in the Decatur Mall. If I called his name, many of you would, would know him. He's not a Christian, but I, I walked, I bet you I walked 10, 12 rounds at the Decatur Mall with him, talking Bible. And this man knew the Bible uh, very detailed from the Old Testament, but he wouldn't dare entertain the idea of obeying Christ. Just having Bible knowledge doesn't mean that we're in the kingdom. Sitting in the church pew, we love it, and it's a great place to be to worship God, but sitting in a church pew does not make one in the kingdom as, as well. Giving of our money might make one feel religious and, and very good about himself, but that doesn't necessarily equate uh, being in the kingdom of God. You see, I remember a, a quote uh, from a man back in the 18th century. He said, uh, many, many women are on the brink of discovering a lot of mysteries and knowledge and wonders, but... It's as if their hand is on the latchet of the door and they never go in and they die on the outside. We need to know and remember that the doors of the kingdom are wide open. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The, the, the doors of the kingdom are open, but they will be shut one day. Matthew 25, verse 10. Jesus gives a parable. And he ends that parable by saying, The door was shut. The door, to the foolish virgins, the door was shut. and could not be opened. That, that door will be closed one day. This scribe 
seems from all accounts, he seems to be a wonderful man. He seems to have discovered the truth and he was headed in the right direction. But he was, he was not yet in the kingdom. Jesus said, you continue on this course, you will be in the kingdom. You're not yet there. There's a danger of being close, but not yet there. And so these statements about this man, something different about him. We want to be different from the Lord. And all we've got to do to be different uh, from the world is to follow the Lord. Okay. And if we follow the Lord in his ways, we will be different. And that's what the Lord wants from us. This man was distinct in his ways. He understood the heart of Jesus. But not yet there. Not yet there. Can you imagine almost getting to a place and yet having to turn back? That, that's happened. That's happened to all of us in different ways. I've known folks who are going to a college football game and made all their efforts and got to the very borders of the city and had to go back home because of an emergency. Okay. They were close to getting in that stadium. Many are close today. They have a favor toward God. They, they love the scripture. They love worship. They're, many are close. Many are on the borders. Many are on the front porch. Many have their hand on the latchet. But they're still outside. We sing this song this morning. Can we encourage you to obey Christ? Before Jesus left the earth, he said, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's entrance into the kingdom. And then a submitted and uh, faithful life to follow. Some have been baptized into Christ, but somehow they remain distant from the Lord. Can we help you in any way? Please let that be known right now as we stand together, as we sing.